As many of you know, I went to a Methodist seminary. Now, for someone raised in a humanist, Unitarian, Universalist congregation, I had a little trepidation about what I might encounter there. Bishops wandering the halls in special robes. Not really. Lots of people saying grace before meals. Yes, and actually that part was nice. And plenty of people talking about God. In preparation for that last one, my husband, who was at the time just my boyfriend, but still very nice, (laughs) made a mug for me. It was one of those Starbucks coffee mugs where you can design what goes underneath the plastic exterior. Here it is, in fact. Covering the mug are little sayings about God all gleaned from a book called God, a Companion for Seekers. Peter chose some great ones. Smaller than the small I am that still center within you, the needle's eye through which all the threads of the universe are drawn. Paul Murray. God is the beyond in the midst of our life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In the faces of men and women, I see God, and in my own face in the glass. Walt Whitman. Peter told me that he made me the mug meant to hold my tea through all my long morning seminars, so that when everyone was talking about God, I would have my own ideas about what they meant, my own definition or definitions of the word that was swirling around me. When I accepted your call to become the senior leader here at the Washington Ethical Society, I wondered if I could even bring my mug to work with me. (laughs) One of the things that I love about ethical culture is its focus, the centrality of ethics in its religious message. When describing our movement to newcomers, I often say that we see ethics as at the heart of all religions, and that while our members may come from a variety of spiritual traditions and carry with them their own beliefs, that what we talk about on Sunday morning is that which unites us, human relationship, ethical living, how to be in the world. God doesn't really come into it for us, at least not in our shared life together. It's not that we don't welcome people who believe in God. It's just that for our congregational conversation, the concept, the word God, simply isn't relevant. Well, I have to tell you, God is the most talked about non-relevant word around here. It is whispered in hallways or talked around in path to membership classes. My favorite question from a newcom- was from a newcomer who asked what exactly we believed about, you know, the G word. <laughs> Guns, I thought to myself. Gold? Garfield? My point is, for a word that we don't talk about, a word that isn't relevant to our coming together, we certainly seem to have some thoughts about it. And precisely because we don't talk about it much, my sense is that our thoughts about that word 
are often rooted in earlier religious experiences. That the last time anyone tried to define God for us, we were in Sunday school in a church very different from Wes, or listening to our aunt whose theology was never anything we would agree with, or just hearing the way God is defined by what we might call conservative American Christianity, the kind we see on TV and in popular culture. There's a common story attributed to a number of authors, from the theologian Forrest Church to an anonymous Harvard chaplain, and who knows who said it first, that speaks to this idea. The story has a church member sidle up to the minister and announce he doesn't believe in God. Tell me, says the minister, what kind of God don't you believe in? Because I probably don't believe in that God either. The story highlights for us the reality that we who are in non-theistic, liberal, religious traditions often find that our understanding of theism, our definitions for God, are plucked out of an earlier time. Karen Armstrong, the scholar and author of A History of God, puts it another way. There is no objective view of God, she writes. Each generation has to create the image of God that works for it. She goes on, the same is true of atheism. The statement, I do not believe in God, has meant something slightly different at each period of history. The people who have been dubbed atheists over the years have always denied a particular conception of the divine. What conceptions, what definitions, I wonder, do we hold of God? What did I hold when I needed that coffee mug to get me through my seminary classes? As it turned out, actually, the coffee mug, although sweet, wasn't really necessary. Many of my Christian colleagues in seminary had broken free from those old definitions years ago. My four years in school invited me on a tour of different understandings of the G word, a tour I'd like to take you on this morning. Even if you are only visiting the God continent today, I hope you learn a little more about the local language and customs so you can be a good tourist in years to come. I want to start, though, with the idea of God that many of us think other people have, the God, perhaps, that the minister in the story didn't believe in either. Reinforced by popular American culture, this is God as often described to children, a kind of God that creates a safe world until, of course, He doesn't. That pronoun is important, too. This God is always a he with a capital H. He's the grandfatherly figure in the sky, the puppet master who is omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. This is God the Father in the most chauvinistic understanding of the term. And it's not, I have found, what many liberal Christians or Jews mean when they use the term. It's interesting, though, to think about where this concept of God comes from and where we find him still. The Jewish and Christian Bibles both have a variety of understandings of God. Within the Jewish Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, so Genesis, Exodus, a lot of our, the Bible stories we know, there are four identifiable sources written at different times and in very different historical situations, which a later editor pulled together to create what we know as the canon. 
Pulling out those sources and which story was written by which source often comes down to the style of language, either poetry or prose, and the way God is described. For instance, the J source, J for Yahweh, the the word used to describe God in that source, has a God who is anthropomorphic, walking and talking on earth. Similar to other ancient texts of its time, J source stories include talking animals and colorful language. Think the Garden of Eden with the snake. The E source, on the other hand, E for Elohim, the word used for God in this source, has a more powerful but distant God removed from the daily human experience. Of course, these different sources and the different gods that they portray don't change the original revolution of the Hebrew Bible and Judaism itself, the creation of a large-scale religion with monotheism, or belief in one God, at its heart. This idea is central to most Western understandings of God, specifically that we're talking about just one, not one of many. We'll come back to God and gods outside the monotheistic tradition in a little bit. So even within that monotheistic tradition, though, we see some basis already for different understandings of God in the Jewish text. Within the Christian New Testament, God takes on an even closer connection with humanity. One of the revolutions of Jesus within his time was to suggest that anyone could have a relationship with God, not just through the very prescribed rabbinical authorities and experiences, and not just those who were clean enough or in the right group. Jesus referred to God as Abba, which means not father, as we sometimes see it translated, but daddy. It's a term of endearment. And it is symbolic of that deep connection that Jesus felt any person could have to God. I do feel I should note here that when I said we were going to take a tour through the God continent, I meant like a speed tour. Anytime you move this fast through history and culture, you are going to gloss over some important details. So keep that in mind as we have just handled Christianity in one paragraph. (laughs) If you are interested in more, tell me and I'll teach a class. So we've glanced at the Jewish and Christian texts, but those texts, of course, were written and canonized, that is, sealed, thousands of years ago. And Jews and Christians have not stopped thinking about God and their understanding of what that concept means. Having so many different descriptions of God in their sacred texts helps, I think, because it opens up the possibility that there are different ways to interpret that word. To get some really new understandings of the Christian God, though, we have to fast forward a couple of centuries to the 19th century here in America. The Protestant Reformation, which happened in Europe in the 16th century, expanded the idea of religious authority, specifically whether it was found in the hierarchy of the Catholic Church or whether it could be found in personal interpretations of Scripture and experiences of the holy. Add to that shake-up in authority the advent of the European Enlightenment in the 18th century and its renewed interest in classical philosophy, the humanities, and humanism. And you have a great setup for some really interesting conversations about the nature of the divine by the 19th century. And I forgot, actually, about sprinkling in some major scientific discoveries and a growing understanding of and belief in the scientific process. So, what did all of that come together 
to create. You, you caught that, right? That was about 300 years. We're done. Okay. We're in the 19th century. People had been struggling with the problem of an omnipotent God and evil for a long time. In fact, that question is a whole subset of theology called theodicy. And there had been centuries and millennia of debate about free will, whether humans had it at all, if we did have it, how much we had, and how free will interacted with a God that could control the world if he wanted to. One answer to these questions developed into an idea called process theology. Originally created by Alfred North Whitehead in the late 19th century, process theology sees God as part of a process. God as changeable, growing, just the way we are changing and growing, or the universe is changing and growing. God's power is no longer omnipotent, but rather persuasive. It's a great word, isn't it? God as a kind of calling to people, an invitation to people to treat each other with love, to choose to behave ethically. Process theology is often referred to as, this is a good word for your you know, cocktail party conversation, panentheism, a subset of theism. Panentheism is the belief that God is of the universe, part of the natural world, as well as existing in some way timelessly beyond the universe. So contrast that with pantheism, with no N in the middle, which says that God and the universe are identical, one and the same. There are biblical roots for process theology, actually. Remember the God in some sources of the Hebrew Bible who talks with people and then changes his mind about what he's going to do. But it's also an outgrowth of the centuries of thought since then. God, as understood by process theology, is less anthropomorphized and more a force or movement in the world. As you can imagine, this kind of God isn't really a he anymore, either but in it. That pronoun shift is actually an important one historically, I think, not just because of gender inclusion and our ability to see the holy in different ways, but because of what it says theologically. In the seminary I went to, which was a pretty liberal Methodist seminary, almost all the professors were careful to never refer to God as he, which made for some awkward sentence construction and then God said to God's self in God's time, you know. But it also indicated an openness to different understandings of God in general. God as he tends to lock us into that grandpa on the cloud idea. God as an it automatically tells us we are imagining something broader. And indeed, the 19th and early 20th centuries saw ever broader understandings of God. Ralph Waldo Emerson and the Transcendentalists began, began the trend toward naturalism, seeing God in the world around us and emphasizing the idea that any one of us can tap into that sacred world. Emerson also spoke about the divine spark, something we've talked about here at WES, which located God inside each one of us, a sacred spark of possibility that we are called to cherish and to see in each other. Henry Nelson Wyman in the 20th century reinvigorated religious naturalism and a kind of theocentric or God-oriented humanism. He wrote, quote, 
It is impossible to gain knowledge of the total cosmos or to have any understanding of the infinity transcending the cosmos. Consequently, beliefs about these matters are illusions, cherished for their utility in producing desired states of mind. Nothing can transform man unless it operates in human life. Therefore, in human life, in the actual processes of human existence, must be found the saving and transforming power which religious inquiry seeks and which faith must apprehend. Wyman referred to that saving and transforming power as creative interchange, and we've talked about that too at West. And although he called it God, you would be hard-pressed to find the supernatural in his description of God. We see here an understanding of God that is frankly consistent with much of humanism, an understanding that is rooted in the human experience and calls for nothing beyond it. And what about those humanists? Specifically, what about those ethical culturists? The early 20th century saw the rise of humanism in America in a number of movements, Jewish, Christian, Unitarian, and Universalist, and so on. Some humanists, like Henry Nelson Wyman, retained God language as important in their own religious journeys. Others rejected God language, feeling that the word could only be stretched so far and that eventually it became irrelevant to their understanding of the world and the religious impulse. Non-theistic religion, that is, religion that does not address the question of God but focuses elsewhere, usually on ethics, is not new. Many forms of Buddhism are non-theistic, as are Confucianism and Taoism. In fact, when this society was defending its right to be a religion in 1955 in a famous court case, we dramatically carted in books from the Library of Congress detailing all those religious traditions that didn't include conversation about a deity. We won. For many of us, that desire to not have conversation about a deity is just fine. Non-theism means, basically, that we as a religion don't put forward an opinion about God or really about metaphysical questions at all, but rather talk about ethics in the context of human relationships. Not all ethical culturists have taken that tact, though, over the course of history, our founder primarily among them. Felix Adler was quite the metaphysicist, that is, quite the thinker about the beyond, about the structure of the universe, and not just about what it means for us humans to be in it. In his days as leader of the New York Society, Adler presented lectures to packed houses about the social justice issues of the day, the ethical aspects of marriage and parenting, all the topics that you might expect. And then he had smaller gatherings of those who wanted to explore metaphysics with him, those who shared his personal belief in a unifying structure to the world. Adler sometimes called this structure the Godhead, and then ultimately coined the term the ethical manifold, and he understood it as a radically connected web of individual ethical agents, people to each other. Again, it's an understanding of sacredness that is, not, 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 that is entirely non-anthropomorphic and really not supernatural either. It's a connection among humans that becomes somehow more than the sum of its parts. But Adler, who did not shy away from religious language in general, 
sometimes found it right to use God or Godhead language to talk about this non-supernatural entity. And many ethical culture leaders and members have followed on Adler's broader policy, that is, that this movement is a place for people with all kinds of different beliefs, people who want to work together to do good in the world. In an address given in 1901, Walter L. Sheldon, who was then leader of the St. Louis Society, said, and I quote, One fact is plain to me and established to my mind. No man who is an out-and-out rationalist and a believer in the new standpoint of modern science need feel any shame, intellectually speaking, at having a devout faith in a personal God. And on the other hand, no man religiously inclined and with the spirit of reverence in his heart for all that is good and true need feel ashamed if in the pursuit of his mind after light he is still, in spite of all his search, as yet unable to see or find the same God which other men believe in. I'm sure Sheldon meant we women as well. More recently, ethical culture leader Dr. Arthur Dobrin wrote a book that some of you know called Spelling God with Two O's. I'll give you a chance to see the word it creates. In fact, many of you have quoted that phrase to me, finding in it language that you can relate to, language that speaks to your experience of the ethical as the most important in your religious journey. In some ways, you're doing what every boundary-pushing theologian does. You're taking the God concept and expanding it to a place that feels right to you. God, we're not so sure about. Good, we can believe in. And part of what I want you to hear today is that when you are talking with someone for whom God language does feel like the right fit, whether that person is your Aunt Mildred or the Sikh at the next interfaith rally you attend, that you might just be talking with someone who fundamentally agrees with you about what God means, even if the two of you are using different words. You might not be, too. But you'll never know unless you ask, unless you keep talking and hear from them what feels real about God, what feels meaningful. We haven't even looked yet about un at understandings of God outside the Western Jewish and Christian world. Buddhism, as I mentioned, has some strains which are decidedly non-theistic, and others which see the Buddha as a God figure, although sometimes positing that all of us can attain that God status through right living and meditation. Islam's understanding of God is not so different from the traditional Jewish and Christian understandings. All three religions share some sacred texts and are commonly referred to as the Abrahamic faiths for Abraham, the founding figure that they have in common. Hinduism is one of the largest polytheistic religions still thriving today with many gods of varying importance, many of them anthropomorphized and indeed interactive with humans to some extent in their history, but with deep powers resting in a few key gods. And Hinduism is such an ancient movement with so many different traditions within it that practically everything I've said about it so far could be refuted by some other equally true experience of the religion. There are Hindu agnostics, dualists, monotheists, and atheists. Talk about different understandings of God. We also haven't gotten to the mystics. Anyone have another hour or so? <laughs> the mystics, who from every kind of different tradition and from all traditions, seem to come up with the same 
understanding of God. The mystics who, when the day is done, let go of the language and the trappings of their particular context and end up with something like, we are one, we are precious, look inside, look around, find God there. This platform address was intended primarily as a teaching tool, and I hope that our jaunt through centuries of theological thought has piqued your interest to learn more. I've already mentioned that having a fuller understanding of what God might mean to different people can help you in interfaith gatherings or when you're talking with your Christian-identified colleagues at work who you maybe always figured just meant Grandpa God up on the cloud but might mean something different. But I'll tell you something. Here at Wes, I don't just get questions about the G word from people who want to make sure we don't say it very often. I get them too, more quietly, more tentatively, from those of you for whom God language is a part of your vocabulary. From those of you who have found in ethical culture a home and who love and celebrate our emphasis on ethics in human relationships, but who don't want to be afraid to share your own experiences either. When I was in conversations with the search committee about coming to Wes, one of the questions I remember most distinctly from them was whether I would be okay serving a congregation where I might never be able to say the word God. After those years in seminary, I developed some fondness for the word, and I, as, as I discovered the various and varied meanings it held for my friends, as I explored naturalistic and humanistically based meanings that felt right to me. I thought about that question for a long time, and I decided that what was most important to me was to serve a congregation of people who were doing good, who were trying to live well, and that I would be okay using whatever language invited in the most people in the room. And I am okay with that, although this platform has kind of blown that prediction out of the water. <laughs> but I'll tell you what I'm not okay with. I'm not okay with thinking that you, the people who have found a home here, the people who are exploring a home here, that you can't ever say that word. As one of your clergy leaders, my job is to make sure that this home is welcoming to you, to all of you. As the people who call this place home, your job is to be your true selves and to listen. In a religion of human relationships, I think listening is a spiritual practice, or should be. So when you hear a word that isn't your own, a word that makes you think of cloud grandfathers or vengeful smoters, smiters, or even just irrelevant, outdated concepts, listen. Listen some more. Listen for what the mystics tell us, that beneath the language, before the metaphysical concepts, behind the pan and the pan n and the a and the plain old theists, there's a deeper truth. We are one. That word is just, in the end, a word, a label. Sometimes it labels contents that I find appealing. 
sometimes not. But I always think it's worth peeling back the lid to check and see.